Yeah, Revelation chapter 22 is where you need to turn. If you don't have a Bible, uh, find one, uh, get out your phone, download an app, or snuggle up next to somebody who has a Bible close to you. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5 today. As you're turning there, I want to let you know that last weekend, Laura and I were out of town celebrating our 20th wedding anniversary. I'm so thankful for her. Um, I thank God for her, uh, everything she means to me and everything she means to our family and everything she means to First Baptist Church, really. She serves in ways that you guys don't know about, and we are thankful to God for her. While I was gone, Pastor Dylan continued with you in our walk through Revelation. We have really slowed down in chapters 21 and chapter 22. We are doing everything we can to soak up as much of this good news, as much of this glorious picture as we possibly can, because this is what we've been waiting for. Um, this, this is the moment we have been waiting for. In, in our whole study, our months-long study of Revelation, we have wanted to get here. In our reading of the Bible, just as a daily discipline, this is where we've wanted to get. In a world that is messed up and seems to be out of control, this is what we need right now. This is the moment we have been waiting for, and so we want to take our time as we move through chapter 21 and chapter 22. Pastor Dylan emphasized last week that the presence of God is the ultimate reward in heaven. And he called us to fix our eyes on him over all other things. Even here, even here, as, until that great day comes, we must hold Jesus as our greatest treasure and not the things this world has to offer. We must learn to love him and not this world. And that's hard for us. That's a battle for us. And he invited us to fight that battle together to fight together for holiness, to fight together for a clear vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is hard for us, especially us in this room, for whom life is so easy in so many ways. I hope your eyes have been opened to how easy life is here over the last week or so with the news that has been coming out of Afghanistan. Our brothers and sisters there, our brothers and sisters in Christ there, are being hunted simply for trusting in and preaching about Jesus Christ. Is it easier for them to receive the message of Revelation 21 and 22 than it is for us? Since we're so tempted, we are so tempted to only have eyes for this earth, and they are so geared to have no eyes for this earth, but hope only in heaven. I think that's something for us to ponder. I think it's something for us to ponder and ask that God would make us homesick for heaven, that he would make us feel less at home here so that we would long for eternity with him more and more all the time. When we got together on Tuesday to talk through this text, I found out that Pastor Dylan had done exactly what I asked him to do for you last week, preaching through verse 25. He assumed, as did Pastor Joe when I talked to him, that I must have had something really important to say about verse 26 and following at the end of chapter 21. Well, the reality is, not really. Turns out there was just a typo in the text messages that I was sending back and forth with him on the other side of the planet while he was over there and I was preparing to leave here. I told him, uh, preach chapter 21, uh, verse 21 through 25. I intended for him to go through the whole chapter, but everyone involved was like, man, he must have really something he wants to say about the end of that chapter. And many of you may have thought, why in the world are we stopping here? When, when, when Dylan stopped reading, why are we stopping here? It's just a typo. Just a typo, those things happen, uh, but I promise you I will reach uh, and, and get those few verses as we finish up today, and it's going to work out just right. God is sovereign even over our mistakes, right? Today we're going to cover the end of the vision of the new heaven and new earth and new Jerusalem, and in many ways what we will see in chapter 22 verses 1 through 5 is the climax of this entire vision. 
In fact, I think there's one phrase in particular in our text today that is the very highest point in the whole book. In fact, not just the book of Revelation. Maybe there is a phrase in the text today that is the very highest point in all of biblical revelation. So as we read it through together, I wonder if you can spot the phrase that I'm thinking of. Look at chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. This is what God's word says. Then he showed me a river of water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of the street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor of the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we long to see your face. We long to be in your presence forever and ever where there's no more curse. We long to serve you as priests and we long to reign with you as kings forever and ever. We long for all of this. And we are confident that one day we will enjoy all of this in your perfect time. Until then, we pray that you will show us more and more of yourself as we study the Bible and engage together. And that we would respond rightly to everything that you do show to us. That we would respond in, in worship, in service, and in proclamation. So, Father, we pray that you would use your word today to accomplish this in our lives by your grace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the challenges when we study the Bible and we see it almost every time we open the Bible is trying to put ourselves into the shoes of the original audience as much as we can. If we can understand the text and what it meant to them, how it would have landed upon them, then we will better understand what it means for us and how it should land on us. One of the principles that guides us when we study the Bible is the fact that Scripture will always mean what it always meant. Or to say it another way, Scripture can never mean what it did not mean. That we can't make it mean something new to us that it didn't mean to the original audience. And there are a few things in today's text that are really foreign to us. Like the importance of clean water for survival. About how big a deal it would be that there's a crystal clear river flowing through the middle of this city. For us, that's not a big deal. But for first century Jewish people from a Jewish background, that would have been a huge deal. We take those things for granted because of modern technology. But for first century Middle Easterners, this would have been unimaginable. This would have been amazing. So let's try to let the things in the text today land on us like it would have landed on them. And you'll notice as we read through the text this morning that the imagery has changed a little bit in this vision. We've already seen some temple imagery. You remember that? We talked about the dimensions of the thing, that it's a, it's a giant cube. And the other cubes that we see in the Bible are the holy of holies, that this is one giant holy of holies in which we will dwell with the Lord forever and ever. We've seen some temple imagery in this vision. We've seen city imagery in the vision. We've talked about gates and we've talked about walls and foundations and streets and things like that. So there's been temple imagery. There's been city imagery. And now in the text today, we get this garden imagery. It's the garden that provides the picture that we'll look at today. One preacher refers to our eternal state as it is revealed in the book of Revelation as an Edenic temple city. It is a garden temple city. 
with dashes or hashes or whatever we want to use there. It's a garden temple city, and all of those images come together to paint something beautiful for us. Now, any mention of a garden should take you back to the very beginning of the Bible. It should take you back to the very beginning of all creation, even to the Garden of Eden before the fall of mankind. It should take you back to Adam and Eve as they walked with God in the cool of the day. Adam and Eve as they reigned over all of creation as they related to one another in harmony. It says in Genesis that before the fall, Adam and Eve were naked and they were not ashamed. They were in perfect relationship with one another and there was no shame between them. But we know as beautiful as that picture was at the beginning of Genesis, everything broke. Everything broke when they ate the fruit that the Lord told them not to eat. But what I want you to see today is it was beautiful while it lasted. That picture of the Garden of Eden before the fall was a beautiful thing while it lasted. And it's that picture that's going to be the imagery that we're going to see in the text today. But I want to say right off the bat that the eternal state in which we will dwell with the Lord forever and ever is going to be better than the Garden of Eden that we read about in Genesis 1 and 2. It'll be better than that for a number of reasons. First, there will be no snake in the Garden to come. There will be no snake. That dude is in the lake of fire, right? We read about that already. He's not slithering around in this garden that we will dwell in forever and ever. No, no, no. He's been thrown into the lake of fire already. There will be no snake in the eternal garden. Second reason why it will be better than that first garden is it won't just be Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were the only ones that experienced this perfect relationship with God before the fall. They were the only ones that had walked with him in the cool of the day. But this garden to come is not reserved for two special people. It's not reserved for just Moses and Abraham or some Old Testament prophets. It's not reserved for just the 12 apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. The scripture is clear that there will be a multitude that no one can count that will enjoy this garden with the Lord. That you and I will have access to him. We will walk with him in the cool of the day, all day, every day, without any hindrance. It's not limited to just those two, this new garden experience. And the last thing, the reason why it will be better, is that there's no temptation to sin in this new garden. There's no proclivity to sin like we experience now. In fact, I think you can argue theologically that there won't even be the ability to sin in the garden to come. That we will not have the ability to sin. That that is all done and gone. That is all taken care of. It is out of the way forever and ever. It is thrown into the lake of fire and we will dwell in perfect righteousness with him forever and ever. This new garden is better than the old garden. All that to say... It's the garden that is the image for the text today. And gardens are beautiful, right? Gardens are wonderful. We love to visit gardens. And so that is the hope that we have to come. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of the street. I heard a story one time about a missionary who worked among a very primitive tribe of people. And some of them came to faith in Christ, and this missionary brought some of those new believers, those new brothers and sisters, into a city for a conference. And while they were at that conference, they stayed at a hotel. And those primitive tribal brothers and sisters stole all the water faucets, all the water fixtures from their hotel room. And the missionary like realizes that they've done this, they've made a huge mess, and he's like, what in the world are you doing? Why are you taking the faucets off of the sink and off of the shower and all these things? And they're like, we've got to take this back to our brothers and sisters. You just turn the knob and clean water comes out. Like We've got to give this kind of access to water to our, I don't understand how it works, but we've got to get this back to our brothers and sisters because they knew nothing about easy access to clean water. Can you imagine living that way? Well, just about everybody in the first century lived that way. 
And friends, there are a whole lot of people on the planet right now that live that way. And so when you read in this text that in the middle of the city, right through the middle of the city, there is this crystal clear flowing river that is unimaginable. Imagine hearing about a city that's more like a garden and it has this crystal clear river running right through the middle of it. Talk about lavish provisions. Talk talk about extravagant provisions. Talk about life-sustaining provision. The eternal state will be one where all of our needs are met and all of our needs are met by God in a way that exceeds our greatest imaginations. There is water that flows right through the middle of the city. But we know that there's a symbolic level to all of this as well. And we know that when we read the Bible, water is often used as a picture of eternal life. We're not just talking about physical provision for all of eternity. We're talking about spiritual provision as well. Jesus uses the image of drinking water to describe his gift of eternal life to that Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. John wrote his gospel, same guy that's writing Revelation, is using this picture, this imagery of water, not just to talk about physical nourishment, but to talk about eternal life. Look what he says in John chapter 4. It says, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is very deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Yes, he is. Who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again like the well. Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So you, you see, there's, there's two things going on here, two levels of understanding about this river that flows through the middle of the city. One is it'll be physical nourishment for us forever and ever, and that's a really good thing. But more than that, it's about eternal life. And what I want you to see is that all of this, All of this eternal life and all of this pure water, it comes from God. Look at it in the text. It says this river comes from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It comes from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So where do we get everything we need? We get it from God. right? Where do we get everything we need for this life? From the Lord. Where do we get everything we need in the life to come? From Him as well. We are completely dependent upon Him. And He provides for us in abundance. Look at... Look at the middle of verse 2. It says, On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. This is interesting to me, especially as we use this garden imagery. There's not just water, there's food as well. There's food in this garden as well. And it's an odd picture of food, right? I mean, just look at it in the text. There is one tree, but that one tree is on both sides of the river. I'm not sure how that works, but I'm pretty confident of what it means. It means that it is accessible, that it is available to us all. It's not hard to find the tree of life in the garden. There's one tree on both sides of the river. Notice also it's odd. It says there's one tree that bears 12 kinds of fruit. You ever seen a tree like that? No, that's the point, right? You've never seen a tree like this. This garden that is to come is better than anything we've experienced or can imagine. There's one tree with 12 kinds of fruit, and there's one tree that bears fruit all year long. 
Now for us, at Walmart, Kroger, or wherever we go, we can get apples all year, right? If you want an apple, you go to the store and you buy an apple. It is not that way in most of the world. Most of the world, there is food just for a season. Just for a short time, this stuff is available. And then they've got to move on to something else. But this picture is totally unlike anything first century believers would have understood. We're talking about ready access to all the food we could want at any time all year long. This would have blown their minds. James Hamilton says of this fruit, he says it's abundant, it's accessible, it's constant, and it is of stunning variety. This is a tree unlike any other in a garden unlike any other. But the text is clear that this is about more than mere physical food for us, right? And the text itself lends to that because it calls it not just a tree of 12 kinds of fruit. What does it call this tree? It calls it the tree of life. The tree of life. And that takes us back, right? That takes us back to the Garden of Eden. It takes us back to the story about how there was one rule in the Garden of Eden. God told Adam and Eve, you, you can have all of this. All of this is given to you for your good, for food. But that one tree, don't eat from it. That one tree you shall not eat from, or you will surely die. But they ate from that forbidden tree. And they were cast out of the Garden of Eden. They were kept away from the tree of life. Do you remember how that goes? They eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And they're cast out of the garden so that they don't also partake of the tree of life. But now the tree of life is our nourishment forever and ever. Now the thing that they couldn't get back to is given to us freely. And it is ours to enjoy forever and ever. This is not just a new Eden. This is a better Eden. It's a better garden in which we will dwell with the Lord forever and ever. Here, in this, in this verse, the promise that was given to the church in Ephesus back in chapter 2 is fulfilled. This happens a bunch of times here at the end of Revelation. Those promises that were made at the beginning of Revelation to the churches, if they will overcome, those promises are delivered in these last two chapters. Look at what he says to Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 7. At the end of his letter, Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is a beautiful picture in this new temple city garden. All that we need for life will be amazingly provided for us by the Lord. Every physical need we have for those resurrection bodies that we receive, it'll be met. Perfect river of water, a perfect tree of life. But not only that, everything we need spiritually will be provided for us. Friends, that is the ultimate fulfillment of the experience we're already having. The Lord is already providing for us what we need in this life. And we must trust him for those needs. Look at verse 3. This is the best part. Verse 3 says, There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their forehead. I think verses 3 and 4 are the climax of all of this. There are some big ideas here that we want to pay some attention to. The first thing it teaches us is that there will be no more curse. There will be no more curse. In the garden, God gave Adam and Eve one rule. Don't eat from that tree or you will die. And eat of that tree they did because they were tempted by the snake. And after that, after they ate from that forbidden tree, the curse impacted everything. The curse impacted everything under the sun. 
to borrow a phrase from Solomon that we've been seeing in Ecclesiastes in Sunday school. The curse impacted everything under the sun. Plants don't grow like they should. Childbirth is painful. Relationships are difficult. Because of the curse, everything we see, everything we touch is broken. Sally Lloyd-Jones in her Jesus Storybook Bible, which if you have children, you should have this book. She says of this scene in the garden after the fall, she says in terrible pain came into God's heart. His children hadn't just broken the one rule, they had broken God's heart. They had broken their wonderful relationship with him. And now he knew everything else would break. God's creation would start to unravel. It would come undone. It would go wrong. From now on, everything would die, even though it was all supposed to last forever. Everything is broken here. Everything in our lives is broken here. But in that eternal temple garden city, all of that is over. All of that curse is over. No more sickness, no more death, no more disease, no more natural disaster, no more politics, no more wars, because no more sin. The curse is over. Don't you long for that? We can't even imagine that. We were talking in our Sunday school class about how, how can you eat chocolate cake unto the glory of God? Like not, not go sinful with it, not become indulgent with it, not become idolatrous with it, but is there a way under the sun to eat chocolate cake under the glory of God? Yes, and it takes work, right? That, that doesn't come naturally. We want to make all those things an idol. But there, we eat chocolate cake only to the glory of God. We cannot imagine how to engage something where there's not a curse. And yet all we will know in eternity in the temple garden city is no curse. The curse will be done. That is beautiful, right? In many ways, everything we know in this life is cursed, but soon the curse will be no more. Forever, it will be gone. Let's just try to imagine that. One of the things we learn in 3 and 4 is that there will be no more curse. Second thing we learn in 3 and 4 is that we will serve. We will serve in the temple garden city. There's something interesting going on in the original language. The word for bondservant that's used in this text is a super important New Testament word. It's a word that expresses ownership, but it expresses ownership like a slave with gladness. One resource I read defines a bondservant as someone who belongs to another without any ownership rights of their own. But ironically, this word, the Greek word is doulos, is used with the highest dignity in the New Testament. It's used with the highest dignity in the New Testament, namely of believers who willingly live under Christ's authority as his devoted followers. That's why the Apostle Paul is constantly identifying himself, I'm a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am glad to be a bondservant of Jesus. I don't belong to myself, I belong to him, and I'm going to serve him with everything I've got. That's who I am. That's who will be in the eternal temple garden city, are the bondservants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And look what it says. They will serve him. And that word for serve is a super special word for serve. It's usually reserved only for the work of the priests of the Old Testament. In fact, some of your English translations render that word worship, and that's okay. That's a great way to translate that word. I think on its face it needs to be served, but it carries with it the idea of worship. It's the same word that's used in Revelation chapter 7, verse 15, to describe what the saints who wear the white robes do all day in heaven. They serve God. They worship God. Friends, that's what we will do for all of eternity. That's what you and I 
as redeemed saints of the Lord, that's what we will do for all of eternity. We will serve the Lord. We will worship him. And I love that we get to practice for that even now. Even now, we get to practice for our eternal task of serving the Lord and worshiping him. George Eldon Ladd says this, the chief joy of the redeemed God's servants will be the service of worship they render to him. The chief joy of his redeemed people, his servants for all of eternity, will be the worship that they render to him. I think he's right about that. I think what we will enjoy for all of eternity, what we will do is we will worship the Lord. And that makes me terrified for some of you. It makes me terrified as your pastor for some of you who seem to barely endure an hour and a half in this room. You seem to barely endure a few hours a week of corporate worship unto him. The picture seems to be, we'll do this forever. Let's delight in it now. Let's learn to taste of the goodness of it now and enjoy it now so that we will be ready to delight in it forever and ever. The curse will be gone. We will serve him. But the best part of it all, the text says we will see his face. We will see his face. This is what scholars call the beatific vision. We will see the face of God like no one has seen the face of God before. Psalm 17 verse 15 says, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. A scholar that I've often quoted named Grant Osborne kind of tracks this, this whole concept of seeing God's face throughout the scriptures. And when we talk about it, you may first think about Moses. Moses who asked to see the face of God, right? You remember what God told him? You can't handle that. You, you can't handle seeing my face. Uh, I will hide you in the cleft of this rock and I will pass by and you can see the backside of me, but no man can see my face and live, right? Now it is described in, in kind of figurative terms that Moses met with God face to face, but it's clear that Moses didn't see the fullness of God's face and the little bit that he did see caused his own face to glow so that everyone around knew that he had been in the presence of God. Imagine that unfiltered. Imagine that on full display, that we will see his face in a way that Moses didn't get to. We track it into the New Testament and we see Jesus as the word of God made flesh to dwell among us. We see Jesus saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? And so to look into the face of Jesus is to look into the face of God, but very few people in history got to do that. But here, in this text, in the eternal garden city, we will be physically present with the Lord. And we will look at his face literally. Literally, we will see his face. Is this not the greatest joy of our lives? Is this not what should excite us most about heaven? Is to see the face of God? I'll tell you a story that might illustrate this a little bit from, from my relationship with Laura. Uh, there was a season when we were in college where we were far apart, right, physically. There was distance between us. She was away at school and I was still here. And we wrote letters to each other. And they are, I hope my kids never find those. Oh, man. We've, we've dug them up and looked at them. And it's, it's kind of embarrassing now. But I can tell you when we were separated from this, with this distance, reading those letters that she sent to me was good. Like I, I looked forward to reading those letters. And I would read them and read them and read them and read them. Did you do the same? Seriously? Yeah. 
So when we were far apart, we had these letters that we could read, and we enjoyed reading those letters. And occasionally, there would be some kind of opportunity for us to be together for a short period of time, right? And that was even better, right? Sometimes, sometimes we would talk on the phone. We emailed a little bit. That was like the early days of email. We are so old. The early days of email, we would email. But then we would have these opportunities, these, these small, small windows of time where I could get down there or she could get up here. We could meet somewhere in the middle, and I got to see her face. And that was better than all of it, right? That's what I really long for. Like, I'm, I'm glad to have had those letters, and I'm glad to have had those phone calls, but to see her face is what it was all about, right? And now I'm thankful that I always get to see her face. I wonder if there's a parallel there with the Lord, a similar pattern with us and him. Like, right now, we have his word, and we're thankful for that, right? You, you want to get to know Jesus? You want to get to know the Father? You want to get to know the Spirit? You've got these letters that you can read and reread and enjoy and cherish. And you've got the opportunity to talk to Him, right, in prayer. We can, we can communicate to Him in prayer like when we would talk on the phone. But friends, there's coming a day when we will see His face. And that is not reserved just for Moses. That is not reserved for the twelve. All of us who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we will get to see his face. And what a day that will be. Listen to 1 John chapter 3 about seeing his face. 1 John chapter 3 verse 1 says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we will be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. We know that we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Friends, we long for the day where we get to see God's face, right? Oh, man, that's going to be the best. That is going to be the best, and that is ultimately our hope, that we will see his face. But that's not all the text says. It says there will be no more, more curse. We will serve him. We will see his face, and his name will be on us. His name will be on us, on our foreheads. This is the mark of ownership. It's a mark of authority, but it is also a mark of protection and provision. We are marked out as belonging to him, and this is not new in Revelation. We've seen this imagery all along, right? We've seen the promise that was made to the church at Philadelphia in chapter 3. The promise that was made to the church in Philadelphia in chapter 3, verse 12 says, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. It's the promise that, I, that his name will be on us forever and ever. And then we saw later on that we are sealed with his name on our foreheads. Even here, we are sealed with his name as those who belong to him. And that will be fulfilled ultimately in heaven. His name will be upon us. Read on, though, in verse 5. It says, And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp or of the light of a sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Two more good things about the temple garden city. There will be no more night, only day. And we tend to think about that in, in like literalistic form, and I think that's fine, that there will be no night, there will be no darkness there, there will be no corner in which bad things happen, often in hiding. No, it will be all light there. But John, of all the New Testament writers, likes to use light and dark symbolically. 
More, more than anybody else, he likes to talk about light as holiness and righteousness and darkness as evil. He does this in all of his writings. In John chapter 1, he starts out that way. In the gospel, he starts out that way by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it or did not overcome it, some translations say. John likes to use light and darkness as symbols of good and evil. He does the same thing in his first letter. In 1 John chapter 1, he comes right out of the gate with this. And he says, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So here, in Revelation 22, 5, we're not just talking about our physical existence, our physical experience in the eternal state, all light and no darkness, but we're rather talking about our spiritual experience as well. In the temple garden city, it will be all good and no evil. It's a parallel statement to the business about no more curse. And all of this will be because of him, because he is there. It's not because we are there. It's because he is there that it's all light and no darkness. And the last thing we learn about the temple garden city is that we will reign. We've seen this promise given throughout Revelation, and it's made us somewhat uncomfortable. I remember in the early days of preaching through the book, we would get to these promises of, you will sit on throne with him, you will reign with him. And I was like, oh, I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about him reigning. And yet this is a promise that's repeatedly given to us that we will reign with him forever and ever. And we will reign with him. It's his throne that matters most. And this is a fulfillment of the promise to Laodicea. Back in chapter 3, verse 21, he told that church, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He promises that those who overcome will reign forever and ever. And this promise is the restoration of the role that was given to Adam. Adam in the garden was to rule over everything. He was to subdue the earth. He was to govern over the earth. He was to rule as God's emissary, as God's image bearer on the earth. He was given that role, but he messed it all up. We, in the eternal temple garden city, will do that perfectly with him forever and ever. You put this image of reigning together with the priestly service of worship... And you can see that indeed we are called to be a kingdom and priest to our God. Just like it talks about how Jesus died and ransomed men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. That's exactly what we will do for all of eternity. And friends, that last bit about we will reign would have been super encouraging to the early church. What an encouragement toward endurance this must have been to the initial readers, as they were continuously being dumped on by Rome. Rome hated them, tried to wipe them out. They were often killed, taken away from their homes, planted in other places. They were treated terribly by the world. And the promise God gives to these suffering believers is you will reign. In the end, in the end, in the eternal temple garden city, you will reign with the Lord. Friends, that might not get you going, but I can tell you, if our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan hear that today, that'll keep them going. 
that will keep them going, knowing that it's not always going to be like this. A better day is coming. We won't always be at the bottom. One day we will be on the throne with the Lord. What a promise that is and what an encouragement toward endurance that must be. I told you I needed to reach back into chapter 21 and get those last few verses. Look at verse 26. It says, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But verse 27 says, and nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We've looked at some amazing promises, but those promises are not for everybody. Those promises, no more curse, see his face, reign with him. Those promises are only for those who have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. Who's, whose name is in the Lamb's book of life? All those who are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You know, know if your name's in the book, repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. Those are the people whose names are in the book. Those who are repenting of their sins and trusting in Jesus Christ. The sad truth is the others are kept out. Those promises, those, those hopeful, uh, endurance-inspiring promises are not for everybody. They're not for everybody in this room. They're for those who trust in Christ. So I invite you to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ today. Find in him hope and salvation. A few bits of application that hopefully we'll take home uh, from this text. First is we want to long for this day. We want to long for that garden. We want to be homesick for that. And part of being homesick for that is being dissatisfied here. Part of, being, part of longing for the day to come is seeing the brokenness of this world. And sometimes we would say, well, that's not hard to do. Just turn on the news. We see the brokenness of this world all around us. Man, I'm really convinced that those of us gathered in this room, we, we've, got, we've got some pretty deep roots here in this world such that we don't often long for heaven like we should. I want God to teach us to long for the eternal temple garden city. And I want him to teach us to live for that day. Like that hope of the day to come should impact how we live this day. We cannot live for this world. Pastor Dylan said the most important thing this week. We were talking uh, through the Sunday school list, uh, Sunday school lesson, and we were talking about bucket lists. Do you remember that part of Sunday school? And, and I shared my list and he shared his list. And he said this, he said, the older I get, the more I'm coming to realize that if I don't get the things that are on my bucket list, when I get to heaven, I'm not going to feel cheated. I'm not going to feel cheated. Friends, that only comes if you have a good picture of what is to come. That, that only happens if you understand what is waiting for you so that you see this world for what it is. Not going to get cheated. There is nothing here that compares to that. There's nothing here that compares to seeing his face. So, is that what you want most? You want to see his face most? Like when you think about heaven, and I've thought about heaven a lot recently. What gets you excited about the prospect of going to be in heaven? Streets of gold? Gates of pearl? Reunion with family members maybe that you miss a lot? Those things are good. But you're going to get to see his face. You're going to get to see his face. That's what should get us going. This one that we've longed for, we've read about, we've talked to in prayer. We'll get to see his face. 
the one we love the most, we will get to see him. I wonder if this thrills us. I wonder if this thrills our souls. And I'll give you a good diagnostic tool. All of you are going to say, yeah, it thrills my soul. Yeah, I can't wait to see his face. Good diagnostic tool is how much you're seeing of him now. How much does it thrill your soul to read your Bible? How much does it thrill your soul to spend time with him in prayer? How much does it thrill your soul to gather together with his people and worship him? Like if you kind of roll your eyes at that, kind of can't, can't make time for that, can find better things to do than that, I don't know that it thrills your soul, the prospect of seeing his face. So what I want us to do is see as much of his face as we can right now so that we will long more and more to see the fullness of him in the day to come. And I want you to understand that we don't deserve any of this. None of these promises that are given to us as his people are promises that we deserve. This is all a gift of grace that we receive by faith. No curse, see his face, serve him, reign with him. We don't deserve that. It's given to us by grace. And it's available to all of you. It's available to all of you to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. Ready to do that? What in the world are you waiting for? We sang a song that had a line in it like that. What are you waiting for? Repent and trust in Christ today. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we do long to see your face. We do long to be in your presence forever and ever in a place where there's no more curse. And we long to serve you as priests, reign with you as kings forever and ever. We long for all of this, and we pray that you teach us to long for it more and more as we are confident that one day we will enjoy all of this in your perfect time. Until then, we pray that you show us more and more of yourself as we seek you more and more, that you'll show us yourself more and more, and that we would respond rightly to all that you show us in your word, in prayer, in worship, that we would respond rightly by praising you, by serving you, by telling others about you. Father, we do pray that you'll use this text, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, to inspire that, to accomplish that in our lives today, by your grace. In Christ's name we pray.